It is indeed a privilege and a joy that all of us have been given the opportunity to experience this evening, to come together like this, to understand the great blessing of God with regard to our health and just the capability to be here. For so many are certainly sick, as we've noticed on our listing, and others have even left the frames of this physical life. And certainly we're blessed tonight to have the capability of life, the mental capability to also gather. As you might have noted among the announcements again, I certainly would uh, beseech your prayers on behalf of that gospel meeting at Jericho that begins next Lord's Day morning and continues through the Wednesday evening. Uh, my family and I will certainly miss being here at Pippin, but we do hope that you will continue to think fondly about the meeting there and that things will certainly go well. And I too wish to express my appreciation to those men who so capably and ably will be filling the pulpit or the lectern, as the case may be, to fill in for the Bible study as well as the sermon. I know it'll be, it'll be a very uplifting time. In addition, also don't forget as you think about the fellowship meal that we'll shortly enjoy tonight, I'll have a little more to say about again reminding us about signing up for the photography matters next Sunday or the following, but just if you want to be thinking about that uh, when the time comes as you meet back there, those sheets are still available and you'll be able to sign up for the convenient time, hopefully that still fits well into your schedule. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. As you might have noted in the bulletin as well as on the wall to my left, that's the title, if you please, to the subject tonight. And as we think a little bit about the Sadducees and the Pharisees, I'd like to open up that discussion with just some thoughts to put that on the basis that prompted me to think about the lesson from the very outset. As we read through the Bible, perhaps a varying, varying text that we encounter or we read, sometimes we might be guilty of reading past some of the more common references or some of the more common things found in those verses. So often we may encounter references to the Sadducees or to the Pharisees, and we vaguely know that they were some kind of religious groups that were active and alive and well in the time of Jesus. But maybe our knowledge doesn't go much beyond that. However, if one were to appreciate some of their teachings and some of the basic ideas surrounding those religious groups, we might have a better appreciation for the way that the Lord dealt with them and the very interesting ways in which He often used their thinking to teach them eternally important lessons. It is in that regard tonight that I would wish us to look anew at the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Who were these groups? What were some of the things that they taught? What distinguished them one from the other? Furthermore, upon what basis did the Lord approach them? Did He applaud them? Did He denounce them? Did He rebuke them? Did He correct them? We will be interested tonight to know, if so, why did He correct them? And might that be vital lessons for us today so that we don't fall into the same mistakes that they may well have fallen into? With that said, let's notice first some introductory thoughts about the nature of these two groups as a whole, and then we'll look at them one at a time. As far as the groups as a whole, let's begin by noting the occurrences and the commonness with which the references to these two groups are found. As you might notice there rather quickly, the word Pharisee occurring as either the singular or the plural occurs 100 times in the New Testament. And hence, as we read through, we would encounter these individuals fairly often. Notice the Sadducees, again, in either the plural or the singular, occurs only some 14 times. But again, that certainly is enough to encounter this group fairly often. And one would do well to know at least somewhat briefly the nature of these two groups and some of the things to be found in their teaching. 
it doesn't take very long as one encounters them to appreciate that each one was a religious group. They had a strong tie to religion. They, in fact, encouraged it in others. And hence, the matter of this religion is one critical part of what shall be our lesson this evening. We also rather quickly discover that these groups were frequently a thorn in the side of Jesus. They often, in fact, seemed to have made demands of Him. Show us a sign, they would say in Matthew 16. When they came to the Lord, though He had already worked miracles in their sight, they nonetheless asked, show us another sign. And the Lord, by the way, corrected them on that occasion, didn't He? Might we notice they often asked Him what they thought were penetrating questions. They ask him these questions, the text says frequently, tempting him. In essence, they weren't interested in learning. They were interested in trying to ask him something in which once he answered, they could use it to in fact allay him against various members of the community who were finding him popular as a teacher. They were interested more in discrediting him rather than learning what he had to say. As these thus were often a thorn in his side, they, of course, played a major role in the events leading to the crucifixion. Those Jewish leaders, prompted, of course, by the Sanhedrin and others who had authority in the time, many of those were the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, others, who did not have any great love for Jesus. He was taking too much of the attention they that they wished to have. In light of those matters... You might notice that we find rather quickly in the New Testament mention made of these Pharisees and Sadducees. You first encounter them in Matthew 3, verse 7. That's only the third chapter of the New Testament. On that occasion, in the preaching of John the Baptist, these groups are mentioned, and they came to the baptism that he, in fact, produced there in the Jordan River. Now, as they came to the baptism, John, you might remember, did somewhat rebuke them. He said, O generation of vipers, who, in fact, hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Even he asserted there was a necessity of works meeting repentance, and he had not seen that in them, nor saw it as an interesting part of what they would set forth. Thus, note one interesting thing we learn immediately. These groups, known as the Sadducees and the Pharisees, were already in existence by the time the New Testament opened. And furthermore, they were already well-organized and well-established. It's not as though these religious groups were just in their infancy at that time. They were already well-established, rather well-organized, and in a position to already command a fair degree of importance among the people of the Jewish nation. But that leads me to immediately the next observation. If we find that they were already well established when the New Testament opened, we might wonder, are they mentioned in the Old Testament anywhere? And the answer is no. One will seek in vain for the word Sadducee or Pharisee anywhere in the Old Testament. They aren't there. That leads us to notice then, apparently they were not present in the Old Testament era, but they were well established by the time the New Testament opened, and thus so, where did they come from? Why did they organize themselves this way? What events prompted their, their origination, if you please? All of those are very good questions. I would invite us to take a bit of a journey tonight, albeit a brief one, and see if we can answer those questions about how, in fact, these groups came to be. 
As we do that, one of the first things will be a set of notes, part of which will be drawn from some of the events of the Old Testament, but they will lead us directly into the pages of the New Testament. For instance, consider with me this, if you would. Based on what we've just asserted, these groups had their beginning in that time period between when the Old Testament closed and when the New Testament opened. Now by that we mean this. The book of Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. God inspired that prophet Malachi to pen that book as nearly as we can tell about 432 B.C. Yet when we come to the New Testament, our Savior, of course, was born in the year 4 B.C., so we have about 430 or so years between when the Old Testament ended and when, in fact, the Savior was born. In that 400 years, a little bit over, that four centuries of time, many interesting events occurred that had great bearing on the New Testament that you and I read of so lovingly. One of the things that came to pass was the beginning of these religious organizations known as the Sadducees and the Pharisees. What may have expressly prompted it? We will notice that one of the major events, and of course for the Jew it was a catastrophe that occurred with respect to Jerusalem. When we read in 2 Kings 25, for example, verse number 9, that in fact Nebuchadnezzar with his Babylonian armies ransacked Jerusalem, destroyed it, and burned the temple to the ground. That temple, after all, was the express place that God had placed His name, reads 1 Kings chapter 3. And it is the place in which we understand that the Jews assembled on those specific times to do homage and honor and worship and reverence unto God. What did they do once the temple was no more? What did they do once the temple was destroyed? In fact, what did they do once there was no more Jerusalem? Well, in the short term, they were taken into Babylonian captivity. They didn't have much of an option or a choice in that matter. They had to make do in Babylon for the time frame of that 70 years, but then, by the blessing of God, they were granted the opportunity to return to Jerusalem in that marvelous record of Ezra, chapters 1 through 6. And as they returned, one of the first works that they began was to rebuild the temple. Sadly enough, they didn't complete that terribly quickly. They became a bit unfocused, distracted. They proceeded to do other things besides building the temple. They built their own houses. They built other things using the equipment and using the wood and other metals that was supposed to have been used to build the house of God. As you notice in some of those notes that I've listed, we notice there one return to build the temple. There was another return under Ezra. And we notice in the last six chapters of the book of Ezra, an interesting set of descriptions in which Ezra challenged the people to understand clearly and to understand how important it was to again worship God after the ancient order. Even though they'd been in Babylon for quite some time, there was still a need to go back to that law of Moses. God hadn't done away with it. They again needed to worship in accord to what God had commanded. As Ezra attempted to light a fire beneath them, to appreciate again the significance and the importance and the necessity of proper worship, he had some success, fortunately. But that leads me to notice one of the next comments. Think with me about some of the features that impacted dramatically Jewish life in that period of 400 years. 
not the least of which would have been the governmental matters in Palestine. Remember, there were varying leaders in the Palestinian region. The Romans held sway for a time. The Greeks held sway for a time. We even remember that the Assyrians as well as the Babylonians held sway for a time. With the leadership changing as dramatically as that, no doubt that impacted greatly the daily life of those that claimed to be Jews. But not only that, consider their interpretation of the Old Testament. As we'll find in a moment, that turned out to be one of the major distinctions in these groups. There were some who in fact asserted that those first five books of the Old Testament were literally and absolutely to be followed. Others, however, thought they were merely a general pattern. You only need to use them as a general pattern and nothing more. However, notice also, one could ask the question, how does one apply those scriptures to personal daily life? As differences were arrived at in terms of the answers to that question, that raised itself in the formation of varying religious groups. Some particular groups held that certain ideas were true and that certain things must be followed. Other groups, in an attempt to do what they thought was best, arrived at different conclusions. One need not follow what that group said quite as closely as they claim. We can well imagine today how groups seemingly can form in answer to a given crisis or problem. The idea behind the groups perhaps is noble and good, but they have different approaches to the matter, and they try to solve it in different ways. It is in that regard, might I ask you to notice what was one of the central issues that came to divide certain of these religious groups. We have to go back to the first five books of the Old Testament. That's what is really the major distinction. Those first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, form that section of Scripture you and I often call the Pentateuch. Another name by which Jews often call it is the Torah. It is the basic foundation for the Law of Moses. That were the books in which God gave the explicit commandments on how you worship and how you live, how you sacrifice, how often you do this and when and why. God gave all of those reasons and He specified many things rather clearly and in a rather detailed fashion. This set of five books was written by Moses. In fact, even Jesus asserted that. But notice in Exodus 24.4, we there affirm how significant these matters were as God delivered them through Moses to the children of Israel and Moses wrote them down. Moses was the inspired penman, if you will, for these opening books. That same idea is presented in verse 9 of Deuteronomy 31, as well as, again, that famous statement by Jesus in John 5:46. As the Lord made reference to the fact Moses wrote these things, that again is to be noted in regard to what that next comment is on the screen. There's no argument about these first five books. They constitute the written law of God as penned by Moses. But here was a major dividing factor. There were some individuals who came to believe and who came to accept that in addition to the written word, in addition to the written law, God also gave Moses an oral law. This other law of tradition, if you please, was such that it was supposed to have expounded upon 
and elaborated upon and explained more thoroughly in an oral way what was contained in the written law. Now, I hope that doesn't seem too confusing. But for those who believe that, there were in essence two laws. There was that written law, Genesis through Deuteronomy. But supplementary to it was an oral law that Moses did not write down. It was a law that explained more of the finer details. If you will, it was the handwriting between the lines. It was that oral law that came to be a major dividing point between some of those religious groups. If you notice with me one of the next statements, we're beginning to see some of the distinctions that that oral law had. For instance, the Jews, if you look at this particular doc document or work known as the Mishnah, which in fact is part of the Jewish Talmud. Now the Talmud likely you and I have never seen in its fullest form. What is the Talmud, you might ask? Over the years from the time that the law of Moses was given, the Jewish rabbis and the Jewish priests, as they would write their explanations of many of those laws, and as they penned the specifics of how they were to be kept, all of that that they wrote came to be bundled and documented and placed into one set of books. That's called the Talmud. And today, the Talmud is an extremely huge set of documents. I'm told that it consists of well over 36,000 total number of things included, and if you and I could put it into a set of books, it would likely encompass well over 36 volumes. That's a lot of writing, and it's a lot of reading. Perhaps we can gain an impression as to why. In the Old Testament, the people of God sat at the feet of these priests. They were supposed to know what was in that. As you and I have noticed in our study quite often, they did not know it as well as they thought they did yet. And furthermore, as we'll see in a moment, there was a great number of errors according to even the usage of it. As you consider the notion of that Mishnah, consider with me that there seems to be one New Testament reference to it. It's found in Matthew 15, verse number 2. Now, the word Mishnah isn't found there, but notice what the Lord did say. This was one of those occasions when there was a discussion relative to some natures of law. And in particular, it had to do with the following question. Why, it was asked, do you transgress the tradition of the elders? That phrase, tradition of the elders, seems to be a part of that compilation of the teachings of the rabbis, the various things over the centuries that they had taught and that they had bundled together. It was not part of the written law of Moses. It was a part of that oral tradition that came to be bound upon many of the Jewish nation. That oral tradition, again, that was not written. This tradition of the elders apparently was a part of this Mishnah, which was one section of the Talmud. That observation being made, notice how that directly leads to this distinction between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. With these foundational thoughts about what these groups were and where they came from, might we begin with the Sadducees? Considering these ideas as background, the Sadducees were one of those religious groups, and note what some of the features of this group was. They maintained a strict adherence to the Pentateuch itself. 
That is to say, they turned their attention to the written part only. They had no interest in the oral law. They claimed that part was not inspired. That was only the writings of men. That part came not from heaven, if you please. That alone is a significant point, isn't it? The Sadducees turned their attention to that law of Moses only. Genesis through Deuteronomy. You'll notice, though, one thing I have left out. I said Genesis through Deuteronomy. In what way did the Sadducees look on the other Old Testament books? All those books from Joshua to Malachi. Did they pay attention to them? Did they consider them inspired? Did they, in fact, use them as doctrine? Unfortunately, the answer is no. They found the basis for what they did in those first five books, and they found it not interesting or, in fact, necessary to look beyond it. So they didn't consider the other Old Testament books as worthily as they should. That's not to say they perhaps didn't read them, but they didn't place them on an equal par with Genesis through Deuteronomy. That thought alone leads me to the next set of comments. These Sadducees rejected that oral law, as I briefly noted earlier. They did not think it was inspired. They did not consider it a viable matter, and they thus gave no heed to it. In addition to that, they rejected all that they could not find support for in the books of Genesis through Deuteronomy. Isn't it interesting then? They rejected all that they could not find supported, substantiated, or based in some way, clearly they thought, in those first five books of the Old Testament. That led them to reject those very things that probably have already come to your mind tonight. What was the Sadducees known for? They didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in life after death. Notice that they rejected all of that, and from their perspective, they found no evidence for it in the first five books of the Old Testament. You might notice, I'm not saying that's correct, for in fact, they were greatly mistaken, but that was at least the approach that they took to those matters and to those things. I might ask us very briefly to notice, though, on the one occasion when they so directly challenged their Lord. Remember they told the story about a man who had, in fact, or seven different men who had the same woman for a wife? And they asked, whose wife shall she be in the resurrection? The Lord demolished their argument. And he quoted from the book of Exodus to do it. One of the very books that they supposedly used as the basis for their doctrine. He quoted from Exodus 3, verses 14 and 15, and he said, I am that I am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus thus asserted, these are still living. There is life after death, and there is to be a resurrection. Those thoughts help us to see furthermore that some other things are interesting to notice. These Sadducees were somewhat tolerant of applying the Mosaic law to practical daily life, and certainly that was what was intended by God. We would certainly compliment them for that. It is, though, a fact that those who were Sadducees, more often than not, came from the more well-to-do families, those of the priestly order or those of rather well-recognized political family structure. Those kinds of things remind us that the Sadducees, with their direct relation and their demand as it related to the law of Moses, when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in A.D. 70, 
and destroyed the temple there, the Sadducees soon dropped out of existence. Without the temple to be the centerpiece of who they were, the centerpiece of where they would meet and worship, they soon dropped out of existence. They vanished. And so it was, one might well wonder, what about the other group? What about, in fact, those Pharisees? With these major thoughts about the first group, let's consider the second and notice how different they were. With regard to the Pharisees, we can well notice that they were exceedingly zealous, at least in language, to maintain the purity and the specifics of what was found in the Old Testament. In distinction to the Sadducees, they accepted now all of those Old Testament books, all the way from what we would call Genesis to Malachi. But might we also notice they were accepting of that oral law as well. And in fact, that was that tradition that the Pharisees so often bound upon others. Do you remember that the Lord, in fact, rebuked them rather sternly when he, in fact, asserted, make sure to listen to what they say, but don't follow what they do. They were rather hypocritical, weren't they? And as Jesus rebuked and denounced them, notice a few of the other things that you and I are able to say about them. As surely as they accepted all of the books that you and I would recognize in the Old Testament, it's also the case that they accepted that oral law. And much to their detriment, they rather frequently, in fact, paid more attention to that oral law than they did the written law. In fact, they would elevate higher than the actual writing of the Old Testament the words of those priests and the words of those other lawgivers as it was actually written orally. Notice thus, they superseded the law of God as it was written. They placed that oral law higher in acceptance and higher in importance than what God had actually written. Of course, that was the very thing for which the Lord so often denounced them. Do you remember how, in fact, Jesus stated that in Matthew 15, a little later in the same chapter. In verses 7 through 9, when he spoke about worship, he said, This people draweth nigh to me with their lips, and honoreth me with their mouth, but their heart is far from me. How could that be, Lord? In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrine, what? The commandments of men. Where did those commandments come from? It was nothing more than these oral laws that they thought were of higher repute than the Scriptures, but they made it, in fact, more significant than the actual Scriptures of God. Jesus called that doctrines of men. Of course, it was as wrong for them to follow it then as it is for us now. Man has no word to replace or supersede or even stand on equal footing with the work of God. The Holy Scriptures stand alone as the all-sufficient, all-authoritative, inerrant, inspired Word of God. And it is that Word that they mistakenly allowed to be superseded by the traditional writings of men. That thought, in fact, challenges us to see what comes next. You'll notice, as one example of the thought I just listed, there was an instance in Mark, the seventh chapter, in which these Pharisees demanded adherence by those of that day to nothing more than a tradition. Do you remember the scene? It was the washing of hands. These Pharisees were so insistent upon it that in fact they rebuked Jesus because His disciples had failed to wash appropriately before eating. It was on that occasion that Jesus again reminded them 
this matter of washing, though that might be hygienically good, it's not something God commanded. And it is not to be placed as a commandment of God. Any today who try to thus take something that man has devised, or that man has schemed, or that man has come up with, and to demand that it be a part of what one must do to please God has greatly erred because that person has had the audacity to speak for God. You and I are not God. His ways are far above our ways. His thoughts are far above our thoughts, to quote Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. And thus anybody, be it then or now, who attempts to speak on behalf of God and bind that on others, might in fact soon appreciate the great terribleness of that thought. In essence, to do that is to add to this word. And what penalty is there found in the word of God itself for adding to it? We've often noted in Revelation 22, the closing chapter of the Bible, there John expressly said that to the person who adds to the words of the prophecy of this book, what shall be added to him? The plagues written therein. So to that one who chooses to add to the word of God, he shall find added to him the plagues written in the Revelation. In Revelation 16, we notice what plagues those are. The plagues that in fact follow the pouring out of the vials of the bowls upon the character of those disobedient to God. Those who in fact were unable to enter the temple of God. Those were the ones you see eternally lost. Those were the ones who acted in a way not only foolishly, but in fact in a damnable fashion that cost themselves eternal life. You'll notice then that in terms of these Pharisees, we might well wonder what fate did they in fact experience when Jerusalem was destroyed? Since they in fact did not place the great degree of emphasis upon the written law and the temple, but rather the synagogues were more to their liking, they were far better able to adapt after Jerusalem was destroyed, and so they lasted much longer. In fact, it would seem at least a couple of centuries afterward, the Pharisees were still going strong. Their adaptation was a bit easier to accomplish because, again, it wasn't so sternly based upon Jerusalem and the temple that existed there. For instance, today, if one were to ask about those in the world who claim to be Orthodox Jews, who claim to still gave, give their devotion to what was in the Old Testament, they would in fact be after the pattern and likeness of the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Notice that particular thought does not compliment them that well. For the Lord often denounced the Pharisees, didn't he? As we come near the close of that part of the lesson, what was it the Lord asserted in Matthew 23? When he addressed the Pharisees, seven times in that chapter he pronounced a woe upon them, W-O-E. And those woes are some of the most remarkable things, for in fact, on one occasion, he said, as you in fact make a proselyte, you make him twice more a fold a member or one lost from the devil as you are. On another occasion... He made reference in that same chapter to the fact of a sepulcher. They were like whited sepulchers on the outside appearing so pristine and white, but on the inside full of dead men's bones. How would you have liked to have heard the Lord speak to you that way? 
It's no wonder that they were some of the very ones who were so insistent on his death, so insistent on doing away with this man, because there were very many on that particular tribunal known as the Sanhedrin Council. Many of them were Sadducees, but many of them were also Pharisees. Might we well recall in the book of Acts, when the apostle Paul had been arrested, and when the time came for him to appear before the groups of that day, what issue did he raise, and how was it to his benefit? It was in the 23rd chapter of that book, Paul, though on trial himself, raised the issue of the resurrection from the dead. And when he did, the Pharisees and Sadducees began to fight amongst themselves, and they lost all track of Paul. Paul knew exactly what he was doing because wasn't Paul formerly a Pharisee? He stated that in Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and following, didn't he? To note these matters perhaps would give us a better helpfulness as we think about the nature of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees ourselves when we read the New Testament and notice how they appear in various texts. To conclude our lesson this evening, if we could briefly summarize some of what we've learned we noted that these two groups originated in that time period between when the Old Testament ended and when the New Testament began. They were well established by the time the New Testament, in fact, came to be. And inasmuch as that's true, perhaps one of the major distinctions was their regard for the books of the Old Testament and the oral law. The Pharisees gave heed to all of the Old Testament, and unfortunately the oral law as well. The Sadducees only considered the first five books of the Old Testament. No interest in the oral law and none for the later Old Testament books. Inasmuch as the Sadducees tended to come from the well-to-do priestly families, they seemed to die out quickly. They vanished soon after the destruction of Jerusalem. But the Pharisees, being far better able to adapt, having not so much a sticky measure of adherence directly to what God said, they were far more open to synagogue matters as well as to adaptation for the years that would come. As we close the lesson, might I submit, there are good things we can take from each of these groups, but there's also unfortunate things about each one as well. On the good side for the, for the Sadducees, paying attention strictly to what God said. But one bad thing, they ignored much else of what he said in the later Old Testament books. In terms of the Pharisees, on the one hand, it's certainly appropriate to think about some of their activities in terms of an interest in being pure. But on the bad side, that oral law, paying too much attention to things God didn't write and to, in fact, pay more attention to that than they did what God did write. May we learn lessons like those and use them today as we strive to serve God more acceptably and more perfectly day by day. What did God say? In the 27 New Testament books, the law beneath which we live today, we have the plan of salvation set forth in absolute plainness, in absolute clearness. Any person who's reached the age of accountability must believe Jesus to be the Son of God, must repent of his or her sins, must confess the name of Jesus, and must be baptized in order to be saved. Mark 16, verse number 16. When a person has done that, however, there is still that second law of pardon, 1 John 1, verse 7. 
exemplified in Acts 8, verses 20 and following. And it may be tonight that there's a need for prayer for one or more that has perhaps walked away from the faithfulness that is no longer living in the way that you should. Tonight, if we could help you in that regard or in the act of confession and baptism, it'd be a joyful opportunity and it'd be a marvelous time to make that occur. We would only ask that in a public way you would let that be known while together we stand and while we sing.